Hi, it's Casey. Thank you for shining on today. And you know what happens in a couple of weeks? We celebrate the 500th episode of Shine On, the health and happiness show. It's been like seven years of Sunday mornings or something like that. I'm not a big counter, but my colleague Randy Turner told me that's how many shows he has on file. 500. Oof. You can always hear the most recent at caseyradio.com. Thank you, loyal listeners. Now let's jump right into the inspiration. How would you handle a major diagnosis in your life? Not life-threatening, but truly life-changing. Could you become a beacon for hope like Jennifer Rothschild? She is surviving beyond her limits and promoting some positive self-talk. Here's the thing, and you know this. Every, in fact, everyone hear my voice is going to start nodding their head. We all talk to ourselves. And if you're not convinced that you do, researchers and neuroscientists, I don't know how they figured this out, but somehow they have figured out that everybody carries on this internal dialogue that is about 150 to 300 words a minute. A minute? Okay? A minute. And I can tell you probably are toward the 300. I think you're a fast talker, (laughs) fast thinker. But by the end of the day, that gives you between 47,000 and 51,000 sentences or phrases, okay? So that's a whole lot of self-talk. Now, the thing is, a lot of it is neutral. You know, like my famous one is, where did I put my phone? Or Mm -hmm. I can't forget to pick up my dry cleaning or whatever. We do that kind of stuff to kind of self-monitor and help us stay in line. But... There's a heap and lot of stuff that we say to ourselves that is destructive and unkind and not based on the truth. So we put these unrealistic expectations upon ourselves. When we don't meet them, well, then we shame ourselves, scold ourselves, and beat ourselves up. So the reason we're so stuck in lies is because we don't have a realistic and a truthful representation of who we are and what our expectations should be. And so I'm all about just accepting and embracing our real selves instead of constantly trying to reach this ideal self that is often unattainable. How do we find compassion there? Well, I know for me, it's my faith that allows me to do that because I have found a place where I can find my sense of identity in a place of unconditional love and acceptance and grace. And I'm telling you, when you fall and you land on grace, then life is a whole lot easier. So for me personally, and that's kind of how I help my reader, is to find that place of self-compassion in a God of compassion. I think you have to find a way to be able to love the best part of you and love, not just accept or tolerate, but love the worst part of you. Because when we're truly an integrated person, that means we got highs and lows, and that means we got to embrace all of it. Because if we reject what we don't like about ourselves, we will never truly love ourselves completely. Okay, so how did you come to be so faithful? Mm. Well, part of my story is that when I was a teenager, 15 years old, I lost the majority of my eyesight. I was diagnosed with a disease in both of my eyes called retinitis pigmentosa. So real rapidly, within about three or four months, my eyesight got worse and worse and things got darker and darker. I was declared legally blind. And after going to, of course, several doctors and several hospitals, it was diagnosed that this disease, retinitis pigmentosa, was the cause. But the worst part of it was that not only was I legally blind, but that the prognosis was that I would continue to lose eyesight until eventually I'd be totally blind. Now I'm just, just hit my 50s, and it's true, I, I became totally blind probably about 20 years ago. 
And so I've lived in physical darkness now half my life, almost the majority of my life, more than I lived in physical light. And so when that kind of catastrophe or opportunity, however you want to look at it, comes into your life, you know, for me, it gave me an opportunity to either become better because of it and find a purpose within it or become angry and bitter and feel like my life had lost its purpose. So for me, I feel like God used blindness in my life to in many ways rescue me from my own potential bitterness and dogged independence. And he has used blindness in my life to be a bridge that has drawn me to him and connected me with other people. You know, I just am filled with so much compassion when I think about not only 15-year-old you, but also your mom and dad. Anytime I meet a mom who has a child with special needs, my greatest encouragement to them is to recognize that I think the burden that they carry for their loved one with those special needs is far heavier than the burden their child or their loved one actually carries. And here's why. I just know what it's like to be blind, but my mom doesn't know what it's like. She knows what it's like to look, to watch, to wish she could fix it, and to cry those invisible tears every night. And so to any mom or dad who has a child with special needs, may I please be a voice of encouragement to tell you that that burden you carry for your child is so much heavier. You only have enough grace to watch, but that sweet person who you love God has given them plenty of grace to participate and to carry that burden. And I believe in the compassion of God that he carries a lot of that burden for us. Do you remember a time when you realized, I am a child of God? To be very honest with you, I had grown up in the church. And one of my um, favorite things was my grandma had given me an old red leather Bible. And I still have it. I can't read it, of course, but I used to read it every night. And I would read out of the book of Psalms. And now that I'm a grown-up, I understand why. I mean, it's like bloggers in there. You know, God, I'm happy. God, I'm miserable. God, help me. God, why'd you do that? (laughs) And so it's like it's the anatomy of your soul, really. And so I remember how much I loved reading the Psalms, and they brought me such a sense of comfort. And then when I couldn't see that Bible anymore, I remember that feeling of loss. And that, I think, is when it became the most obvious to me that it wasn't being able to see God's words, the Bible that connected me with Him and made me know I was a child of God. It was the fact that He had already hidden all that in my heart and that we were already connected through my faith in Him and through Jesus. And so, for me, really, when I lost my sight is when I gained a greater understanding of my relationship with God. Wow. And when did you decide how you were going to spend the rest of your life? Well, you know what? I wanted to be an artist. That was my thing. And in fact, that's what I did. I did cartooning and I had gotten some opportunities to even have little paid jobs, you know, where I would do cartooning and lettering. This was far before the computer and we could all be so smart with our graphic design. And so um, that's what I wanted to be. Well, when I lost my sight, obviously I could no longer be an artist. I couldn't draw, couldn't paint. And that's when I began to play the piano by ear. And doors were open for me just to begin to play at different universities and civic clubs and churches. And that began to grow. I was in the state of Florida at the time. So we traveled all over Florida singing, and I would, of course, share my story. And 
sometimes I believe that we think we're trying to achieve something when really God's allowing us to receive something, and that's what was happening with me. He was allowing me to receive this gift and opportunity and platform to communicate. So that turned into writing books and speaking all over the country, and I'm just one blessed woman. <laughs> I just love, I just love having your voice in my ears. It makes me feel better. I need to go back and I need you hear to hear that again because I want to get it clearly. Sometimes you think you're Sometimes you think you're seeking to achieve something. We think we're trying to achieve something for ourselves, our career. We're trying to achieve. When really, God's already put us in a place where we're right in the middle of what He wants us to receive. And when we really recognize that, we can cease striving and just be fully present where He's put us and receive that and then begin to blossom. Aha. All right, so that kind of takes the pressure off a little bit when you say I'm here because God wants me to be here. So instead of, you know, beating my head against the wall trying to achieve, 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 I should just sit and receive what's going on at the moment. Am I getting this? You got it. Woohoo! <laughs> and it's a lot easier to live that way. And I think then you become um, more connected with really who you are and how God's wired you. Instead of, like I said earlier, trying to seek this ideal self, you're pressing into this real self because how God made us and how he wired us is how he intends us to live and be content. And when we're not there, that's why often we're continually striving and lack contentment. Ooh, okay. Me, myself, and lies. It's like, you know, every sentence from you is very, very meaningful. Mm. All right. So we want people to go get the book and we want them to go to JenniferRothschild.com. And what final thoughts do you have for our listeners this morning? That I would just say that all of us have the tendency to tell ourselves lies and to beat ourselves up. And so when that starts to happen, I think there's three R's you can pay attention to. One, recognize it. Is this a lie or is this truth? Would I say this to someone else? If, if not, then it's unkind. I shouldn't say it to myself. So if it's a lie, that brings me to the second R, which is refuse. I'm not going to say it to myself. I'm not going to let this inside because what I let inside is what's going to come out. So I refuse. And then third, I'm going to replace it with the truth. So, if you are a name caller, if you say, I'm an idiot, mm -mm, you recognize that, you refuse it, and then you replace it with the truth that says, no, I am not an idiot. I am the workmanship of God. And then you clothe yourself with that confidence, and you'll have a great day. Recognize, refuse, and replace. Clothe yourself with the confidence that you are the workmanship of God. Can I get an amen? JenniferRothschild.com has more inspiration. Hi, it's Casey, shining on today with Mark Hoberman. Mark has epilepsy. There, Mark, I just said it on the radio. This Rockland County educator kept his diagnosis a secret, and now he's making up for lost time with his book, Search and Seizure, Overcoming Illness and Adversity. Mark's diagnosis interrupted his teenage years, but he didn't say a word until he saw his own child hit a rough patch. Then he knew he had to speak up. I moved from Yonkers, New York, at the age of 16, after being very popular and having friends, and I was born there. Uh, on three weeks' notice, I moved to Florida. Very depressed, and uh, was able to buy a car, a little happy about that, but unfortunately, three months into it, I had a seizure behind the wheel of that car and uh, almost died if my cousin weren't there to help drive the car through the uh, toll booth. Uh, I had a full-blown seizure. An hour after that, I was diagnosed with epilepsy and had two years of depression and feeling sorry for myself and wallowing in it and never really told anybody for decades. Got myself stronger by researching the illness and, and, and making it so it didn't define me, that I would define me. And then I started the book maybe five years ago and life got in the way and I put it aside. And then my son came down with irritable bowel syndrome 
moment he became the president. He was 15, around the same age I was. And my wife said, you know, you're handling this so well, so methodically, though. How are you so unemotional? I said, you know, I need to get down to business. And I guess my experience with being diagnosed as a teen with epilepsy made me stronger and realize what really counts. And she was at ease. He was more at ease. Then the, the light bulb went off in my head. I am a teacher for 33 years. And I said, you know, if I can help my son, myself, and my wife navigate, navigate the struggle, and it's not always about illness, I can help other people. So it's time to finish the book. Wow. And so finish the book you did. And the book is called Search and Seizure. But what we want to talk about is how you can help other people. So you've been through it. You were there on the front lines and you recognized it when your your child became depressed as a teenager. So what's the best thing for people to do, in your opinion, when they are faced with um, a medical crisis? For me, it's not just medical crisis, it's, it's other things, but it's a great question because they can learn from my mistakes. You can almost learn what to do by what not to do. Do not keep it to yourself. I'm an educator. I kept it to myself as a teen, as an adult, as a young adult, and as a person in the classroom. I had people who I saw back in the, when I worked in the Bronx, it said they had epilepsy on their, on their info card. This is before the HIPAA laws. And it said they were on the medication I was on. I did not divulge anything to them. I didn't say, I can help you. I've been through this. So the best way to help them is do not keep it a secret. Leave no stone unturned. It took me two months to research the illness, call the Mayo Clinic, go to the library. I didn't have the internet. What I did in two months, somebody could do now in 35 minutes with a simple Google search. Right. Uh, you, have, you have to talk to people. There's blogs out there. There's other people in your condition. There's support groups. I didn't avail myself of any of that. And uh, by keeping it a secret, I hurt myself tremendously. All right. But let's talk to the people who maybe have something that they're struggling with and they're ashamed to talk about it or afraid to talk about it. How do they take that first step? That was me. I was afraid to talk about it. And you have to make a decision. I'm very big, and when I tell my students and either the parents of some of these teens who are struggling, that you need a support system. But the question you're asking, the best answer is you need to know that you have to be your support system first. And it takes a lot of courage, and people think there are stigmas attached. And I lost some friends when I couldn't drive and things of that nature, but the bottom line is uh, you have to be honest with yourself and say, you know, if anybody makes fun of me or can't accept me for who I am, I don't want them as a friend anyway. By being open and honest and by researching and reading and by letting people know you help yourself each day. So, you know, you, you have to really be your own support system before you go on the outside. Some people do it the other way around. They go on the outside first and not realizing that, you know, if, when people aren't there for them, they're alone. And when you're alone, you have to be able to count on yourself also. So you have to have the mindset of, I'm going to get better and, and understand my illness and embrace it, not deny it and not ignore it. But, but I'm going to, it's part of who I am. Now it's time to move forward. We're talking to Mark Hoberman, who wrote the book Search and Seizure, Overcoming Illness and Adversity. And if I could go back and meet you when you're a teenager and you've just moved from, were you a New Yorker that moved to Florida? Yes, I was in Yonkers, New York. Oh, well, you got back as quick as you could, right? You're not kidding. Well, the doctors were killing me. I was having, se I was having seizures on the medication. Uh, and I had to go to Columbia Presbyterian to meet the doctor who would save my life. So we moved back in a heartbeat. Oh, wow. Okay. So if I could go back and find young Mark, he's 16 years old, and I say to him, Mark, this, what you're going through right now in your life, seems terrible. You're losing friends. You're, you've, you seem to have lost control even of your own body at times. You're a stranger to yourself. But if you hang in here... You're going to help your own kid one day, and you're going to help a lot of other people. What would you have said? Interesting. I would have felt good for a minute 
the reason my story I think is different, and I, do, I know this from, from school, is when I tell them it was me personally, and they see the living, breathing person, you know, because you can tell somebody, you shouldn't smoke, you know, but if you sell, tell them, I smoked, and look what happened to me, I had emphysema, totally different story. I've had people open up and tell me they were deaf in one ear, that they didn't tell people all through school. I've had people tell me that they were uh, undergoing treatment for breast cancer, and they never even told their closest friends. So it would be important to say that to somebody, but I think the fact that I actually experienced it, and I'm speaking from the heart and through experience, I think the buy-in from the person listening to me is a little stronger. So actually, I never gave anyone the opportunity to say what you just said, because except for doctors, nine people knew that I had epilepsy for 35 years, and three of them were doctors. So I didn't give anybody even the opportunity to console me in the way that you just mentioned. Wow, nine people knew the truth, and three of them were doctors, and the rest probably your family, right? Yes, but not all my family. I mean, close members. I mean, aunts and uncles did not know. My parents thought there was a stigma. They didn't want people to look down upon me. I used my sense of humor as kind of a defense mechanism, but uh, nobody knew. I was just, and, and I'm, I'm ashamed to tell you now that I was as embarrassed at 53 as I was at 17 until the book came out. Wow. And I guess it's too, it was part of our culture. Because I, I, I can understand when you say your parents say, don't tell anybody. That was big in, when we grew up. Tremendous, you know, I hate to say back in the day because I sound like I'm 90, but back in the day, that was the culture. You hit the nail on the head. That was the let's make fun of you. There, there was different bullying than we have today. Now I know the cyberbullying, but there was some real bad stuff going on there at times. And, you know, I didn't want, you know, I had a girlfriend whose parents said, he can't drive you anymore. They never called me in the room and said, tell me about the epilepsy. Are you controlled? They just, you know, ignorance, and I'm using it as just a lack of knowledge in this case, ignorance was, was my enemy, and I didn't want more enemies. So I figured if I didn't tell people, what, what nobody knew was fine with me. Ignorance and fear. Ignorance and fear. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So now the book is out and people uh, people are being helped by it, I'm sure. And your number one advice is if you're going through something, find a support group. And, and also, I, I liked what you said because I think everything in the end comes down to how we feel about ourselves. And if we can have compassion for ourselves first... You know, or eventually, however you find, however way you find it, you have to be your own support system too. Absolutely, that is exactly the truth. Because you know, I, I say that this is why some people who have support groups, Alcoholics Anonymous, and other types of things, when their sponsor is not available, when something happens, they sometimes fail. And I think that's because they didn't make themselves part of their support network. They count on everybody else. So that is exactly right. How do you feel about yourself? And I know you do work with, with yoga and meditating and the belief in yourself. So that is exactly correct. And I think that was the important thing that I was certainly missing. No, I didn't support myself by telling people. I just expected, okay, the doctor will tell me X, give me a pill, and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Here's your chance, Mark Hoberman. Talk to the people who are struggling with something right now and give them your best advice to help to overcome it. Uh, if you're young, find somebody in the school, a teacher, a guidance counselor, an administrator, someone who will hear your voice and help guide you in the right direction. And I'm saying the same thing to parents because parents sometimes have their kids in school and don't tell us they're ADHD or they're having troubles at home or shoot an email. My, let me know if my son's a little off because uh, we're going through divorce now. So be transparent, but not to let people know for the gossip mongers, to let people know because I don't care if you tell 10 people and four don't respond well. If six have anything positive to say to you, then you've just gained so much more than I did. I'm getting such great feedback from this story. Why didn't I write it 30 years ago? There's a lot of wasted time here. You need to enlist the help of a lot of people, but you have to have a nice talk.
talk with yourself first. You have to look deep inside. What do I need to do to make this better? Who do, whose help do I need? And how do I get it? Who do I have to tell? And how do I get the help I need? Right. And I would add to that, too. Don't give up if at your first try you don't get the response you want. Keep trying until you find someone who can help. Oh, absolutely. You, you know, you might get some bad responses and say, see, I told you, I knew it. And then you go back in your cocoon. And that's a mistake. Because by and large, people are wonderful. Look, I stared at the Facebook page for a good 10 minutes before I hit the send button. Because I went from zero people knowing about my epilepsy, or, or nine, I should say, to thousands in less than five minutes. I had an aunt who read the book, said, what a great work of fiction. And I said, this is not fiction. This is a true story. And she said, you really have epilepsy? She was shocked because she was my father's sister. I didn't know that he didn't tell them. I just thought it was never spoken about out of respect for my feelings. I had no idea that they didn't know. All right. You've done good work. Is there a website or anywhere we could go for more information? Yeah. People go to gradesuccess.com. That's my site uh, for, my, for my tutoring business. But on there, there will be a link to markhoberman.com, which will send them to the book. I'm happy to answer any questions if they email me at info at gradesuccess.com. Uh, you know, I've been talking at high schools and colleges and different groups. I want to help as many people as I can. I really wish a book like this or somebody who had my story told me this in either a big setting or a small setting, I would have come a lot further a lot sooner. So I'm happy to help anybody who needs my assistance. Mark Hoberman says, ring those bells when you feel up to it. Tell people who can help, if you can or when you can. You'll know. MarkHoberman.com. He's ready to help you. Now here's help for job seekers or people who want to change jobs. Wendy Sachs can teach you how to pivot into a new career. The key is engineering serendipity. Make it happen. Digital changed everything for everybody. And Wendy knows a few things about changing careers. I started out on Capitol Hill. I was a press secretary. Then I moved into television. I was a TV news producer at Dateline NBC and CNN and Fox. Then I went to a PR firm. I wrote another book. And yeah, I kept switching it up because I really felt that to stay relevant today, I needed to keep doing new things. I mean, I saw that traditional old school journalism and media was dying. And I wanted to make sure that I stayed relevant. And so I kept hopping around looking for that new bright and shiny startup and, you know, hoping to get my experience because I'm a Gen Xer. I'm not a millennial. And I watched people getting laid off. I've been laid off. I've been fired. I started getting worried. I was scared, you know, that if I didn't keep switching it up and figuring it out, I would be out of a job. It's amazing. But in the past five years, there are jobs that now exist that simply didn't exist before. And like so many of them, you know, all these like data scientists, jobs and all these analytic metrics jobs based in media, social media managers, you know, app developers. There were there was no iPhone about, you know, more than 10 years ago. Right. So there are, you know, thousands and thousands of jobs that, you know, we weren't necessarily trained to do. But here's the thing. Today, everyone has to wear 10 hats in their job. Even if you're, let's say you're a TV news producer, you also need to be an expert in audience. You need to be an expert in editing and social media. You're expected to know and produce on so many different levels in ways that we just never had to do before. We have to be more agile and we have to be able to adapt. So so much of it is a state of mind. We're talking to Wendy Sachs, who even with a very bad cold and a steroid shot has such a great (laughs) energy. 
You really have great energy. Help us learn how to pivot. What do we need to do in today's world to be able to pivot in our careers? I look to Silicon Valley because we have a cultural crush on Silicon Valley. What are the successful lessons and themes coming from the tech world, from the startup space? And what I found were some consistent themes. Engineering serendipity. So we think of serendipity as a happy accident. Like, oh, well, that person just got very lucky. She's very fortunate. Good things always seem to happen. But that's actually not true. You can create your own serendipity. You lay the groundwork to make good things happen for yourself. And that means doing some homework. Let's say you know that you're going to go, you know, that there's a conference or something that you could be going to. And you decide that, you know, you're going to go to this networking event, but you're going to know who's going to be in the room at the time. And you're going to have a specific idea of how you're going to connect with that person. And you're going to keep your options open. So doors can open doors, boundaries can keep expanding, and you create the networks and you create opportunities for yourself in a very thoughtful way. Right. It doesn't just happen on its own. Fearless and free, how smart women pivot and relaunch their careers. Visit wendysachs.com. Now, we're going to circle back to our first guest, Jennifer Rothschild, to give us our thought for the day. I just couldn't pass up the opportunity to echo one of her earlier sentences. Anytime I meet a mom who has a child with special needs, my greatest encouragement to them is to recognize that I think the burden that they carry for their loved one with those special needs is far heavier than the burden their child or their loved one actually carries. And here's why. I just know what it's like to be blind, but my mom doesn't know what it's like. She knows what it's like to look, to watch, to wish she could fix it, and to cry those invisible tears every night. And so to any mom or dad who has a child with special needs, may I please be a voice of encouragement to tell you that that burden you carry for your child is so much heavier. You only have enough grace to watch, but that sweet person who you love, God has given them plenty of grace to participate and to carry that burden. And I believe in the compassion of God that he carries a lot of that burden for us. See you next week. You've been listening to Shine On, the health and happiness show with Casey, an Ella's Leash production. The content of Shine On, the health and happiness show is intended for general information purposes only. You can listen to previously broadcast shows online at caseyradio.com. Join Casey for another edition of Shine On, the health and happiness show next Sunday morning from 100.7 WHUD.